0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. All right, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to James chapter five? This is our last message in the book of James. We've been going through it now for 11 weeks and. I can remember a number of years ago when my kids were this young still. They were little toddlers and, um, you know, little kids, school-age kids. And I, there was a season there where I was traveling a lot and I would go to different places for whatever reason. And they would write me these notes. And it would be like, love you, Dad. You know, can't wait to see you Um, you're the greatest, it was like every note was like Father's Day, okay, it was like you're the greatest, you're the strongest, whatever it was, like everything was just way up there, and these notes would be tucked in my bags, and it was like awesome to have them. In the New Testament, there's also letters that are written, And the Apostle Paul maybe is most well-known for those of us who study Scripture as someone who wrote letters. And he also often ends his letters like naming people and saying like, thank you to so-and-so for doing this. Or maybe he's got one little word of like, hey, just keep going or stay encouraged. Or he'll say like, I'm praying for you. But we've been going through the book of James, and James is no sentiment, right? He is just like straight out in all of his teaching. It's just like in your face. And even now, when we come to the end of the book, there's no like, love you guys, you know, there's no lovey-dovey stuff. He ends with like a triple punch here, okay? He ends with what I can only summarize as, and, and this has been the whole theme of the book, is he ends with... Three bold statements for us. Three ways to kind of end his book by challenging us one last time to these three things. Yes, James ends his book with a three-point sermon. Isn't that so neat and clean? James ends it this way. He ends it with a call for bold prayer, for bold faith, and for bold love. Bold prayer, bold faith, And bold love. Let's look at the first one, bold prayer. In this section, the the biggest section, James pulls out three kinds of prayer. Now, I'm attaching the word bold to it, and so um, we can make it seem like it's something other than what we do. But hopefully from your own experience, you'll have known that many bold prayers are pretty like plain and average. And they're prayed by pre- people who are plain and average. I can remember many, any time basically that I would go visit my Oma, which wasn't actually often, but any time that I would go visit her, most of my childhood, she lived in South America, so I didn't see her that often. She would come and visit every once in a while. And then when I was an adult and she was in like a retirement home, we were living in different places. But any time that I was with her, she would either say or my aunts and uncles would tell me, they'd be like, man, she, she prays for you. She regularly prays for you. Just, just a, an old Oma in the evening praying for her grandchildren. And what I want to remind all of us is that many of us are here because of prayer. Many of us are in the in the state we are even in, maybe even in the building that we are in right now, because of the the simple yet bold prayers of Omas and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles. Maybe prayers that were prayed 20 years ago, maybe even before you were born. They're just like pre-slotting in those prayers for future people. This is the kind of boldness that James is going to be getting us to think about in the practicality, in the the regular stuff of life. So look at the first verse here in verse 13, what James writes. He says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So James begins by saying, Listen, in your lowest moments, in your most difficult moments, and in your highest moments, when everything's just, you're walking down the street and you're whistling that praise and worship song. He's like, in both those cases, God is near to you. Now, maybe the one that is the most pronounced for us is the one, the phrase there, anyone in suffering. Because I don't know about you, but when we're in suffering, those are the, those are the highest moments where we think, I am completely alone here. Nobody gets what I'm going through. There's no circumstance like mine that I can even, you know, connect with someone. This week I was uh, meeting with some some friends and I was meeting with a, a guy. I hadn't seen him in a long time. He came in. I could see, like, something was up. He was downcast. And so we're sitting, we're meeting, we're talking about different things, And come to find out he's in the midst, he's in the middle of a storm of a family event. Trouble on all sides. And he says, man, I'm in the middle of this mess and I've done all that I can from my perspective. There's other things that are are coming into the the situation now that are beyond me. And he said, "I'm, I'm at the end of three days of no sleep. Three days of very little, like, eating food. I'm just at a fragile state. And you could totally see it in his demeanor and on his, you know, his whole body. And it's in in those moments. Have you been there? Maybe not exactly described like that. But in in a moment of difficulty, in a moment of pain, in a moment, like James says here, of suffering... And you look out at the crowd of people, even the crowd like the SAPFest maybe, 75,000 people. You look out at the crowd and you think, nobody gets what I'm going through. Nobody is in this level of suffering that I'm going through. James says, in that moment, right there, when that thought is coming upon you, James says, you have this gift at your fingertips as a believer, As Christians, we have this gift that is given to us. This gift called prayer that connects us in a relational way to the God of the universe. God who goes with us into every trial. Psalmist David puts it this way in chapter 34, verse 15. He says, "...the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry." You see, you hear the language there, it's poetic, but this is a searching. He's like coming towards us. When the thoughts of, I'm suffering, and nobody else is experiencing it, in those moments, God is coming, he's leaning in, his eyes are there, he's looking, his ears, he's hearing. Verse 17 then says, "...when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles." the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's that's who the Lord comes near to when we feel that everybody is distant. And so James says, in those moments you have been given the gift of prayer, a way to relationally connect with God. Not Not the God's like, You know, in ancient history, the gods would be up there, right? Up in the clouds and on the mountaintops. Zeus is up there. He's distant. He's far away. He's thunder. He's lightning. But also not the gods who are in your house, these little pagans, these shrines that you pour out libations to or you make sacrifices to. This is still the model of the gods in our world. These distant things that are separate from us that, you know, that need to be revered or these things that are near that need to be appeased. James says you are in relationship with the God of this universe and when you suffer, he's actually near. He hears you. You can tell him maybe what nobody else could hear. Then James goes one step further. So the second kind of prayer is actually a prayer for the sick. It's very practical. So James says this in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." These are interesting verses, okay? These are verses that some people read, and they're like, man, what do we do with that? Can't we just pass those over and just go down to verse 16 or something? That's what I wish, right? But no, we're going to go right through them. There's, there's one side of it where people overplay these verses, okay? They look at these verses, and they think, oh, this is, this is perfect. This is like a formula. If I get the right people in the room... If they say the prayer is in the right way, then the equation is healing. This is fantastic. One, two, three, healed. But then on the other side of the equation, there are some who look at this text and they just, they just think, okay, this is not for today at all. This is apostolic age, early church age. This is maybe more spiritualized. You know, there's some sort of spiritual healing that takes place takes place. Or maybe this is just, you know, he's pointing to this future resurrection that's going to happen. It's not a reality for us. And I think that the scriptures actually point us to a, a way of actually practicing this in our modern day, okay? And let me just highlight a few things that bring that out. Firstly is this. When James talks about the sick here, he's talking about people who are severely sick. James is saying there, it seems to be from the text that they're so sick that they can't actually, you know, get up and get anyone to help them anymore. The elders actually have to come to them and pray for them. So there's an instance where there is a sickness here that is really severe, but the word for sick is not just like a sick of the physical nature. The word itself actually is quite broad. It can be a spiritual sickness can be a physical sickness. It can be, even the word itself has a, a mental, like a mental capacity sickness connected to it. So there is this broad range of sicknesses that come into the lives of believers, where James says, call the elders for them to pray over this person. So there's sickness that comes into people's lives. Then he says, call in the the elders who will actually come and they will pray for this person. And what does it say? They will anoint this person with oil. Now, this oil is not some sort of magic oil. You know, it's not like a movie where you suddenly, you pour this oil and, and sparkles or shimmering happen. I don't know. There's no like magic that comes with this oil, okay? This is a ancient practice that people would be anointed with oil, or blessed with oil, and this act would dedicate them, would set them aside for the will of God. That's what this oil is meant to symbolize. It's meant to symbolize with the the prayers and the anointing that this person is opening themselves up to the will of God for their life. And, and the main thrust of the point here is not the actual, actual anointing with oil. It's the praying. It's the act of praying. So we've got the sick. We've got the elders who are present. They're anointing with oil, and they're, they're praying. They're dedicating this one to the Lord's will. And finally, he says that they would actually have faith, that they would exercise faith in this moment. And, and in the moment, if you see in the text, It's not even the faith of the person who is sick. It's actually the faith of the elders. The elders, as prayers, as present in that context, are the ones who are to embody this faith. So what kind of faith is this? Is this like a totally unique kind of faith? Because maybe the elders are thinking, maybe the elders in the room are thinking, I don't know if I have this kind of special faith. Explain this a little bit more, James. What are you talking about And all James is getting at is this is a faith that trusts, again, in the will of God. Elders are called to lead a church. They're called to shepherd the church, you know, like what we were talking about. They're called to just guide and and practically lead. But one of the ways that Scripture actually says is their foremost way of leading, one of the primary things that they do is to pray for the congregation activity stuff and focus on two things, the teaching of the scriptures and praying for the congregation. So James here is saying, here's what elders do. Elders sacrifice actually of their own personal time, and elders step into a context with the faith that God can actually do something. God can bring healing in some way. Now James, I think, is saying God can actually heal physically, But God can also do some other kinds of miracles, preparing people's hearts for a difficult road, preparing them maybe even for death that's coming down the road. Whatever God's will is in this context, James says, do it. Bring the elders into that context to pray over these sick ones. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, he says this, When referring to asking in the name of Jesus, he says, You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's what John 14, 14 says. To ask in Jesus' name means not simply to utter his name, but to take into account his will. Those requests offered in that will are granted. Another commentator puts it this way. The prayer offered in faith is circular in shape. It begins and ends in heaven. In the sovereign will of God, this is why we usually say, if the Lord wills. So, this is what James is saying. Here's what your prayers should look like. Here's what a prayer of faith is it is a prayer that is actually in sync with God's will in this world. It's in sync with the kingdom coming and being a reality in our presence. And that, at times, James says, will actually bring physical healing to some. So, James says, Prayer for the sufferer. Prayer for the sick. And in the third one, which in James' mind, I think is even connected to sickness, is the prayer for the sinner. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, in James's theology, there's, there's even a, a correlation there to this sickness that he's talking about and a confession of sin. There There's times when you see in Scripture where sickness and sin in people's lives is actually connected. And so James says, here's what you should do. In the context of the local church, this should actually be practiced. Confess your sins to each other. Like, have a, a spirit of transparency and honesty. how often does this get practiced? It's like, there's not even much else for me to say to kind of clear this verse up because it's pretty plain, isn't it? In Christ. That our calling as fellow believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is to confess our sins to each other and then through prayer enter into this space of a forgiven brother or sister in Christ. It's not to gloat in our sin. It's not to flaunt grace, as Paul says in Romans. That's not what we're called to do. But we're called to have such a relationship as a church where confession is a practice. It's a reality within the relationships that we exist in. And then, in that same context, prayer. Praising God for the cross. Praising God for His grace. This is partially why we have a moment in all of our Sundays that we call confession, where we don't like blurt out all the things that we've done this last. Sing together what Jesus has done for us. And that's what James is encouraging them to do. Talk about bold, okay? Bold prayer. The bold prayer of the sufferer, the bold prayer of the sick, and the bold prayer of the sinner. And what you'll see with all of these prayers comes with it action, like steps of faith to actually do something as you enter into this prayer. And so James goes on, and this takes us to our second point. The first is bold prayer. Second here is bold faith. James gives us an example to look at of actions that followed with this prayer. So he goes to the Old Testament and talks about Elijah. Verse 17 says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James pulls this example. He says, I want to I give you something to think about. Someone who actually prayed and then put into action their faith that they were believing in God for. And so he says, I'm going to introduce you to Elijah, which someone, you know, they were very familiar with Elijah and all that, you know, he had done. And, and there was, in the, in the first century, a temptation to make people who were doing, like, fantastical things into gods themselves. So you see this in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul healed someone. I think it's on the island of Crete or something. He heals someone, and everybody's like, you must be a god. You, are you Zeus? You know, they're trying to like introduce themselves to Paul, who's maybe Zeus. There's like some sort of miraculous thing that happens. He must be a god. And the same thing was happening with Old Testament characters. This, this idea that these people are otherworldly other than us. They're so different because as we read their lives, they're so fantastical that, you know, they can't even be human like us. So, what does James say here? James says, Elijah was a man. Elijah was a man. The NIV puts it this way. I love how the NIV puts it Elijah was a human being. Doesn't it seem obvious? He's a human being. Elijah was someone who went to sleep, he ate dinner. He had to clean himself every once in a while, or at least I hope he did, okay? You know, he just, the regular things of life. He got a cold. He, he walked to this place or that place. Elijah was a human being. James is trying to remind us that when we look back to stories like Elijah's in 1 Kings 17 through 20, and we read the things that Elijah is doing, you should have on your, you know, in your mind's eye that this is a regular person, This is just, Elijah was a man. And if you read those chapters, you see that Elijah has like huge moments of faith and James highlights one here. But then you go on in the story and Elijah is like afraid and he's not trusting God. But then the next moment he's got, you know, moments of faith and he's trusting God again. And when you read a story, in many ways, you say like, he's like me. He has good days and he has bad days. He has days of extreme faith, and he has days where he's totally faithless. And James says, Elijah was a human being. And when he prayed, God did something. He prayed and he acted. He prayed and he acted. And 1 Kings 17, is this amazing verse that says this. After Elijah's praise, it says, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Have you ever thought of that? The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Now, why would the God of the universe listen to anybody else? He is supreme over everything. Everything is under him. He's created everything. But here, Elijah, a human being, prays to God and then acts out the prayer and the miracle. And God listens to his voice. And so James is is challenging us not to, you know, be controllers and think that suddenly we can control God now with our prayers, but to pray and to bring our lives into the will of God, and to then, for most of us, it's to look back and see all that God has done. You know, this church was started almost, almost exactly three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, and It's amazing to look back now over three years and see all the provision of God. Things that we weren't even praying about. Things that we weren't even bold enough to ask about. If someone had come to me three years ago and they would have said this, Darcy, I've got a word for you from the Lord. I'm seeing in your future in three years you're going to be in, in a you're going to be in Trinity United building. And you're going to be a church that meets of like 130 people, 150 people maybe on a Sunday morning. There's going to be like 60 kids. You're going to trip over them. There's going to be that many of them. okay? And you're going to be in that building. It's going to be completely yours. The whole building is going to be yours. You're going to get to use any room in it. It's going to be all yours. The boiler in that building is still going to be running. In three winters. From now. You know what I would have said? I would have said, okay, you know what? Stop with the fiction, okay? Just, you know, stop with all that stuff. We know we're only in there for a few months. The building's getting torn down. Again, okay, the boiler is barely making it, okay? None of that stuff's probably going to happen. But now that we look back over three years, we see what three years ago would have thought like a miracle, wouldn't it? Three years ago, we would have thought, it's never going to work out that way. It's never going to pan out that way. So James is coming here and saying, listen, Elijah was a human being. He prayed, and he acted, and God did the miracle. Chris Austin, it's a bit of a long quote he was an a early church father from about the 400s. He wrote this. He says, The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is in prayer an all-sufficient Penelope, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. James is saying, listen, in your faith, pray boldly, but trust God deeply. Edwin Orr says this, whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. And I agree with Edwin. He always sets them to praying, to do something. So let me ask you this because I don't know the answer to this question. What do you need to boldly pray for? What is on your mind today, this morning, that you think, that's not possible? It'd take a miracle for that to happen. What is that thing? James is saying, that thing, commit it to God. And in the committing to God, As you do that, he says, step out in faith. Act the miracle. Live it out. And as you do that, as your prayers and your actions go forward, he says, what should happen then is your life should be becoming more and more in sync with God's vision for it. So that whenever the answer comes, whatever it may be, it may be what we were hoping, it may be totally different than what we were hoping, but we have confidence that God's will is being done. And in that confidence, it's the very thing that we end up wanting. We end up wanting God's will because His will is far greater than our will. Bold prayer, bold faith, and lastly, bold love. Verse 19 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James here, in his these are his final words, his final two verses to us. He says, for those who want to wander away from Christ, and, and all of us, if, if we've been a Christian for any length of time, all of us know people who have wandered. For all kinds of reasons. Bored of the church they go to. Hurt by the church that they've gone to. Too far for them to believe different things in Scripture. Personal sin in their own lives. And and whatever whatever it is, whatever the excuse, it's probably another list of a hundred things. They just end up wandering away. And James says that wandering, that's actually on us. That's on us as a church. That, remember, with the kids, we just said that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the one who, for all of us who are his children, when we begin to wander, Jesus gives us this picture that he's going to come alongside and kind of bring us back in line. Or if we're the ones, I don't know if you've seen that, that video of the sheep that kind of jumps into the, like, thump right into the hole and then the guy pulls him out and then like two feet later, thump back in the hole. Yeah, that's Jesus pulling us out, right? He's like, I will be the shepherd who keeps coming back 50 times and I'm going to pull you back out. And so in this case, James says, we follow, we as in God's people, follow our good shepherd Jesus. We do the work of going after the ones who wander. We are the ones who are the physical presence of Jesus. We're not Jesus, okay? Don't hear me. We are not Jesus. But Jesus says, you now are God's people. You're the representative of Jesus and, and the love and the grace to our neighbor and to people around us and definitely to each other. So when, when people from our midst wander away, we are the ones who, and this is why I'm calling it bold love. We do the work of bold love. And here's why it's bold. Because most of us don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We don't want to go after people. You know why? Primarily because we are most concerned about ourselves. We are primarily concerned about this little chunk of flesh right here. This is most important, highest on the top list. Is this thing happy? Does this thing have what it needs? And so, to go after someone else is going to take self sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but I just don't always have that. I've experienced that even with my own family, you know, especially when the kids are younger. It's like, I don't know if you've gotten there before. It doesn't even take me that long to get here sometimes. Where it was like, I'm done. You know what? That bowl of cereals on the floor again, that's it. I just want to pack it up, you know, and hit the road. Or maybe it's like another, you know, blown out diaper. or I don't know what it is. Okay, I can't even remember the diaper days. But whatever it was, it was often something so tiny, I was just like, I'm finished. So if I'm saying that with my own flesh and blood, what are the odds of me like mustering it up to do it with you? And this is where James is saying, this is why it's James' final word, I think. James is saying, here's what you're called to, brothers and sisters. You're called to care for each other. Even when you wander away, someone else is going to come after you and say, hey, here's what we're doing. We're following Jesus. Now, we're not going to use this to spiritually abuse people. Sometimes verses like this can be actually used to spiritually abuse people. They're going to, you know, we're going to club you over the head to kind of act like us. You go to Citizens Church, this is what we act like at Citizens Church, Okay. No, James is saying we follow Jesus. We follow the great commandment. Love God and love our neighbor. And so this is what Jesus has called us to. And when we wander, which we all wander to varying degrees, James says, go after that person in love. Paul puts it this way. In Galatians 6, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, This is how we actually do it. We restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And keep a watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So in a spirit of humility, knowing that every single one of us wanders, we pursue. Then Paul says in in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens. So don't be like me. Get so frustrated and just be like, I'm done. Paul says, bear with each other because you all fail. We all fail. So he says, bear with each other's burdens so that you fulfill the law of Christ. So James says, bold love. Sacrifice for each other and boldly love each other. Boldly pray, act in bold faith, and act in bold love. Now, let me just end with this what does the shepherd's crook look like in real life? What does this really look like to to guide someone back who's been wandering? I think it it looks like very practical things that are actually a part of our lives. It looks like working on something shoulder to shoulder with someone. It looks like sitting at a dinner table and eating a meal and talking with someone. It looks like going for a walk with someone. And the reason why I think it looks that way is because when you see in scriptures, when you see Jesus actually working with his disciples and and kind of guiding their thinking in their heart, he's doing it around all these same things. And in Luke's gospel, right near the end, after Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead, there's a story of the strangers on the road to Emmaus. I don't know if you remember that story. Where they're walking along and they've come to the point where they were like, I thought this was it, man. Like, I thought Jesus was going to be the one. And Jesus comes alongside them, and they don't even know that it's him. And Jesus says, what's up? You guys look downcast. And they're kind of like, yeah, we're, we're done, Jesus. We're maxed out. We thought Jesus was the one, and we don't know where he is now. It's been three days. He's dead. Our hopes, and it says, our hopes are gone. And what does Jesus do? He walks with them. And he starts telling them the stories of the Old Testament. He starts pointing them to the the promises. And then it says they get to the town where they're going. They get to Emmaus. And they sit down and they have a meal. And he's he's with them. He's talking. He's chit-chatting. And then suddenly when he breaks the bread before them, their eyes are opened up. And they're like, Jesus. And it's in those moments, church, where we boldly pray and we ask God for something. And we step out in faith and we do the maybe the little thing. And then, in the act of doing those things, when the faith is put into action, then God actually shows up. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for this book that we've been able to walk through together as a church and for the lessons that we've learned. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would put into our hearts the things that we we really need to hear in this moment. And Lord, would you just use that to, to teach us and to grow us into who we are in Christ Jesus. Amen.